Be seated, please. Good to have uh, our organist back from her uh, extended vacation. <clears throat> Not sure she sees it that way, but we're glad to have Edna Bay back playing the organ with us and glad she's improving from her health issues. And uh, we are glad that we are all able to be here, are we not, to worship the Lord and fellowship together. Uh, it's the greatest day of the week, and it's the best way to start out the new week on the Lord's Day. Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We'll be reading this morning from uh, verses 5 through 11 as we've been working through so far the first uh, part of chapter 2 after looking at chapter 1 and trying to see how Paul is encouraging this congregation, a, a good congregation, not perfect. They have some issues and Paul is dealing with those, but a fruitful congregation and one that was supporting Paul in his work. And he is writing to them to express his gratitude and to remind them of the joy that we have in Jesus Christ. Isn't that something we need to be reminded of? I can have joy. It's not just an emotion. It's an attitude. Uh, and it's one that God provides us. It's the fruit of the Spirit working in us where we can be we can rejoice in the Lord always, as he says in chapter 4. Whatever the circumstances, there's that underlying uh, foundational joy that we have because Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. And he has pardoned our sin, made the provision for our being pardoned. And he's given us all of these wonderful graces and benefits that are ours in Christ and will only get better as we move further along in our Christian life and as we ultimately get to glory. Now we looked at the first four verses last Lord's Day, and I'll re refer to that when we start examining this in a few minutes. <clears throat> but let's pick it up at verse 5 and read through verse 11. Follow with me as I read Philippians 2 at verse 5 through verse 11. <clears throat> Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
This is the word of the Lord. We all understand what it's like to experience extremes in our daily living. You hear sometimes people say, or you've probably said it yourself, I know I have, that was the best day of my life. Or, on the other hand, there are times when we want to say, this is the worst day ever. Right? There are times like that. I thought about that as I followed along uh, some of the Olympic uh, participation by some of our athletes and there was one in particular that made me think of this extreme situation and that was when Jade Carey, one of the gymnasts, American gymnasts, had an awful showing in her routine one night and she was sort of the backup for Simone Biles and she came in and uh, just did terribly. Her dad is the coach. And he consoled her or tried to, and it was just, you know, you could just see it on her face. It just, all that work, and it just was, was, it came to nothing in a sense. I can't imagine how disappointing it might be for an athlete uh, to experience that. But then, 24 hours later, she did another routine, and she won a gold medal. What a difference 24 hours makes. In the pits, one night, and the next, standing on the top of that platform with that gold medal hung around her neck and getting hugs from her dad, the coach. That's pretty extreme, isn't it? Pretty extreme to experience life in ways like that, and all of us have our versions of that, I'm sure. But listen, not to take away from those experiences, good and not so good, but nothing, nothing compares to the extremes that we just read about in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus goes from the extremes of glory with his Father to the extremes of death on a cross, and then extremes of being exalted into heaven. All for us. So let's look at what that's telling us. Why does Paul do this? Why does he trace this, this uh, incredible journey, if you will, of Jesus from heaven to earth to heaven? He does it, of course, as I said, for us. But he wants to do it more specifically because of what he had just told the Philippians in the first four verses of this chapter. Specifically, he was telling them that they needed to humbly serve others, to treat others as more important than themselves. And Paul understood that we have our challenges when it comes to that. Even as believers in Christ, there are times when we struggle with wanting to put ourselves ahead of others. And we can come up with all kinds of reasons for that. I'm too tired, I'm too busy, and so on. When we have opportunities to minister 
to others, to treat them as more important as ourselves, than ourselves. And so with that in mind, he turns to Christ himself. What was his attitude? What was his mindset? Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have this mindset. So I want you to notice here that this, these verses that we've read quite probably were an early hymn that was sung by the church in the first few centuries. Have no idea what the tune might have been. And I, I haven't really searched it, but I would love to know if somebody has actually set these verses to a singable song. Perhaps they have. Uh, maybe more on that later. But uh, nonetheless, it was, I wish in the ESV, at least in my Bible, I wish it had been put in verse form, uh, like some translations do give us a better sense of what this is really what this is really about this is a summary of the work of Christ for us it is one of the richest most concentrated theological treatments of the work of Christ and because of that preaching from this passage scares me to death because the more I study this, the more I realize there's, there's so much here. So I'm going to just do the best I can as we look together at this. And I want you to notice that this hymn, this poem, has three stanzas to it. Now, it's not accurate in your outline. Uh, the verses there are not quite the way I, I want them to be. But in the first two verses, verses 5 and 6... We have the first stanza, and then verses 6 and 7, uh, and then verses uh, 9 through 11. Uh, excuse me, 5 and 6, 6 and 7, and then 8 through 11. Something like that. We'll see it as we go along. <clears throat> first, first stanza. In the first stanza, Christ in his humility, and this is the whole point of this, is the humble mindset of Christ for us. Christ in his humility was willing to forego all of the privileges of heaven, the highest privileges that you could possibly have in heaven. And so he tells them to have this mind in themselves that was also in Christ Jesus. And notice he says, it's yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's the first stanza. His divinity. The mindset of Christ was his status with the Lord. Here he is in the form of God and yet not considering all that that entailed to be something to cling to, to clutch, to refuse to set aside for the sake of others. Think of what it would have been like for Jesus in highest glory as the eternal Son of God. And we need to adopt the same mindset, first understanding all the privileges that Christ had in his position as the second person of the Trinity. What was that position? He was in the form of God. Now, don't misunderstand that. He's not saying Jesus just looked like God. We don't know what God looks like. He's not talking about physical appearance so much. 
One scholar explained it this way, that this term, the form of God, does not refer simply to external appearances, but pictures the pre-existent Christ as clothed in the garments of divine majesty and splendor. We can scarcely grasp what that's telling us. It is hard for any of us, and it's certainly hard for a preacher to do that. But he was equal. We know from, from what the Bible tells us and what we studied in, in uh, understanding what the Bible tells us. Jesus was equal in power and glory with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. All three persons of the Trinity are equal in power and glory. They have separate functions. They have distinctions from among themselves, but they still are all equal in, God, in power and glory. It's divine, a part of the divine nature of God. And of course, there are passages that tell us that. The word that, that Paul uses here to say equal, you people who know a little bit about geometry will appreciate this. It's the word that we get isosceles from. Isosceles is not the same name of a Greek god, as far as I know. An isosceles triangle. How I remember this, I don't know. But an isosceles triangle was one that had two equal sides. The third side wasn't the same length. And so what the word is saying there is equal. That's what the word that Paul uses in the Greek, the word we get isosceles from. He is equal to God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He is God. Jesus Christ, his divinity is what Paul is pointing out here. But even though he was the eternal son of God, he wasn't concerned about clinging to this glorious position that he had in all of the wonder of being in heaven. And even after people were redeemed through Christ and went to heaven when they died, there was more glory. People were uh, in glory and departing to be with Christ, as Paul mentioned in, in chapter 1 here of Philippians. They're with Christ, and Christ is sharing that glory, and it's a wonderful thing to even think about. Unceasing worship, perfection, not only within the Godhead, but within all those who had been ransomed and brought to Christ through their death. Now, if that's the case, Paul is saying here that Jesus wasn't concerned about flaunting his power and authority when he would come to earth for his own selfish desires. And, of course, remember, verse 3 is where Paul was sort of rebuking the Philippians for having that attitude, their own selfish desires, maybe wanting to throw their weight around and, and uh, treat themselves as more important as, than other people, thinking of themselves first and others, if at all, second. Jesus wasn't like that. And if anybody had a good reason to to uh, use his power and his glory to his advantage, it would have been Jesus, right? But he does the very opposite of that. We might say he does a 180. 
from where he was in glory in all of his privileges and, and honors and he sets all that aside. As someone put it, he waived his rights. He willingly waived his legitimate rights. He sacrificed them. Bible scholar Dennis Johnson put it this way, Christ did not regard his equality with the Father as a pretext for grasping, but as a platform for giving. Again, think about this and what this is telling us about what Paul wants us to do. He wants us to follow this same pattern, whatever our privileges are. Think about your status and your privileges. Of course, they're not like Christ's. But God has given us that. We are, we are believers in Christ. We're members, we're, we serve the King of kings. We're members of the eternal, unshakable kingdom of God. And... You know, we, we have those wonderful blessings. We're here today when probably most of the population of our country and the world is not doing this. We'd like to think, well, they're missing out. <laughs> they're missing out. There's nothing like it. These are privileges, and we have a status, a certain status in whatever God calls us to do in life, in our jobs, in our relationships with our family in our church, serving Christ in his kingdom. So if you're thinking, well, I can use that to my advantage because I'm more educated than some, of the, some people or uh, I'm making more money than some people or um, I live in America and it's the greatest country in the world and all of that. And sometimes we can just flat out think we're better than some people. We probably wouldn't want to think that consciously too much. But sometimes deep down, that's, that's where we are, but not where we need to be. But you know, if you are secure in your relationship with Christ, and you are, sometimes you don't feel it. You don't feel like you are. But the promises of God are these. You, you are no longer condemned. You are a son of God. You have all of these privileges, and nothing's going to take that away. You cannot even take it away. God won't let you. <clears throat> because, as Philippians 1, 6 said, he who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion. He's going to finish it. Now, because of that security, we can sleep well at night. And because of that security, we don't have to prove ourselves to other people. We don't have to show other people that we're superior in some way. We don't have to expect them to wait on us. You know, children who are in a secure relationship with their parents tend to do better in life. They don't have some of the emotional trauma and challenges that children who don't have that blessing uh, have to deal with. But it's even more so in your relationship with God. And so you can focus on others without being concerned about how it's going to affect you. You don't have to worry about giving up something or losing out because you put others ahead of yourself. God's going to take care of you. 
Security in our relationship with Christ means then that we don't have to be concerned about what the world thinks of us or we don't have to be concerned of what we might lose. Jim Elliott, the missionary who was killed by the Aka Indians in the late 1950s, had a famous saying in his notes that he wrote, his journal. He said, he, who, he uh, is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We don't have to worry about losing. Christ didn't have to worry about that either. <clears throat> now, the more we realize <clears throat> the infinite magnificence of Christ, He's God, the more humble we will be because we are His. Now, the second stanza I want you to notice uh, is in verses 7 and 8. And there we see Christ in his humility was willing to endure the greatest suffering. We see Christ in his humility willing to forego the highest privileges. And then <clears throat> all of this changes when Christ is God, becomes God incarnate. And so we have the second stanza, if you will, of this hymn, <clears throat> verses 7 and 8. He emptied himself. And maybe the emphasis should be this, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We first saw in this stanza Christ's exaltation, his divinity, and now we read his, his humiliation. And it's almost like going down a, a flight of stairs, what you read here. He humbles himself lower and lower and lower and lower to the point of death on the cross. Again, all for those who would trust in him for eternal life. Now, in your hymnal, you're not going to sing. Where did my hymnal go? <clears throat> It's not in here. Hold on. I want you to turn in the back of the hymnal where the catechism questions are. And we're going to look, I believe it's on page 870. Look at catechism question 21, the very bottom of 870 and on to the top of 871. Who is the Redeemer of God's elect? The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Now, we talked about that in this first stanza. And then uh, verse 20, uh, question uh, 22, no, excuse me, question 27. 27, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low, a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, 
the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. That's what we're talking about here in stanza two, the humiliation of Christ. Humiliation is a little different from sometimes how you and I feel when we're embarrassed about something. I felt so humiliated. Well, yes, but what we're talking about here is humbling yourself and and suffering the the effects of that. Look, if you humble yourself and treat others ahead of yourself, it's going to be costly. It may only cost you a little bit of your time or energy to put someone ahead of yourself. But whether it's that or whether it's something far more extreme, it's costly to put others ahead of yourself and to take the form of a servant. And the word here for servant is, is the lowest word of all. It's not just uh, a slave, it's a bond slave. Or I should say more accurately, the word servant applied to uh, people who had rights. But a bond slave had no rights. It was the lowest on the totem pole in society. And Jesus, considering it where he was, he goes all the way down and takes the form of this bond slave. That's what we're talking about when it says Christ emptied himself. And that's why I wanted to emphasize the word himself. He emptied himself. Now there are some people who understand the Bible, and there's a, a group of uh, a theological school of thought that says, oh, when Jesus emptied himself, it means he, he emptied himself of his divinity. That is, when he became a man, he was only a man. He wasn't God. I think you probably know that's not what the Bible teaches. And we've already seen some of that in what Paul has said. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1 verse 1. So he didn't empty himself of his divinity. He took on, in addition to his divine nature, a human nature. And he had the appearance of a man. He was a true human being. You know, he bled. He was hungry. He got tired and he slept when he could. He was as poor as one could be. He was in the most lowly of conditions. But he was a real human being. But he was a human being unlike any other human being because he was sinless. So we need to keep that clear in our understanding of the natures of Christ. Well, he humbled himself. Josephus said, Josephus was a historian in the first century named Josephus. And he said that this was like a king who exchanges his kingly robes for sackcloth. The same idea, only, again, much more extreme, as extreme as it can get. And Christ humbled himself all the way down to the most shameful and cruel experience possible, which was a Roman crucifixion. One can hardly think of a more shameful, painful experience than to be crucified. In fact, if you were a Roman citizen, it, crucifixion was so bad, it didn't matter what crime you committed, you were exempt from something that bad just because you were a Roman citizen, which Jesus, of course, wasn't. 
We all understand, I think, to some degree how awful, how awful crucifixion was. And again, Jesus' motivation was he wanted to be a servant. And in order to be a servant, the ultimate servant for his people, he would humble himself and obey God's will for him, even to the point of death on a cross. <coughs> if you still have your hymnals open, don't open them again, but if you still have them open, let me read 27, Catechism Question 27, which is, again, what we're talking about here. Let me read it again. Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that's not mentioned by Paul, in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Understand, this is all voluntary. You and I can't avoid death. But Jesus could have. But he was committed. His mindset. What he, Paul says, you need to have this mind, the mind of Christ. His mindset was, I'm going to do whatever it takes to serve my redeemed people and provide salvation for them. And he did. Now, that brings us to the thought of Christ making himself nothing. Why did he do it? <coughs> Excuse me. Of course he did it to save his people. Of course he did it to set an example for us of humble service. But even more, he did it so that he could enable us, enable us to serve others ahead of ourselves. We need that enabling grace and power, don't we? Because we, let's admit it, we just don't always want to serve other people. It's more like, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> and so God gives us the mind of Christ and the spirit of Christ to enable us to do that. And that leads us to the last stanza. Christ in his humility receives supreme glory. Verses 9 through 11. Christ in his humility receives supreme glory. The third stanza, stanza talks about Christ's supremacy. The gospel tells us that Christ died for our sins and rose again, conquering death. And then he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling over his kingdom and completing it through the course of history. And it will be completed when he comes back. <coughs> he isn't just exalted, Paul is saying here. He is highly exalted, sort of a superlative form of that word. God has highly exalted him, verse 9, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, key word there, to the glory of God the Father. Catechism number 28, I'm not going to read it, but it talks about the exaltation of Christ, and that's exactly what we were just discussing. Christ's humiliation, Christ's exaltation. That's a summary of the work of Christ for our salvation. Christ has conquered. He's conquered death. 
He's conquered the power of sin in us. And ultimately, he's already begun the conquest of Satan himself. Satan is doomed. He's toast. Just a matter of time before he is judged with everyone else. Because it says here that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ is Lord. When the early church uh, was meeting together in the book of Acts and beyond that, their initial confession of faith of someone who had become a, a follower of Christ would be to say this, Jesus Christ is Lord. And to say he's Lord was to say a mouthful. It was to say that he rules over everything and that we are acknowledging that and we are placing ourselves under that authority and lordship. We are a part of his kingdom and he's the king. Now think about this. A time's going to come when every knee will bow. To bow means to submit yourself to who really is in charge of this universe. Every knee's going to bow. Believer and unbeliever. All those who are in heaven, who've already gone to be with the Lord, all of those who are in the world right now, and all of those who are under the earth, that seems to be a reference to the spiritual forces of darkness. Satan, demons, the spirit world that is opposed to Christ. Everybody's going to come to a point to where they cannot avoid acknowledging frankly that Jesus is Lord. Now doesn't that just amaze you? Think of all the people in this world that don't know Christ. Especially people that we know of. You know, kings and monarchs and presidents and all kinds of people. <coughs> the ones who don't know Christ. Friends of yours. Maybe relatives too. And there are people who will mock Christ who will mock the Christian faith, who will say it's all bunk. And one day is going to come and they're going to say, I was wrong. That's a comfort for Christians because they're going to be judged for their rejection of the true and living God and of this wonderful good news that Christ died for sinners and anyone can come. You know, Paul, Paul is referring to Isaiah 45 when he says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And in that passage in the middle of Isaiah 45, God says, look to me, all the ends of the earth and be saved for I am God and there is no other. The gospel is offered to everyone. Whatever your situation, whatever your past, whatever your present, it's offered to sinners like you and me. Oh, I'm too sinful. No, you're not. Or I'm not very sinful. Yes, you are. <laughs> and Jesus knows that. Come to me and I will give you rest. And so on the judgment day, Believers in Jesus will be vindicated. 
those who don't believe in Jesus will be judged for eternal punishment. Every knee, though, will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is really who he said he was. Now, with all that in mind, it makes me wonder, looking at this hymn, is this the greatest hymn ever? <laughs> I don't know the answer to that, but I do know this. This is a marvelous passage filled with room for us to meditate on it many, many times over. What these lyrics tell us is almost too rich for us to fully absorb, but absorb we must. Jesus Christ is Lord, and one day every creature will admit it, either to their glorification or to their condemnation. Do you have the mind of Christ? That is, do you have his mindset of humble service? Look at the pattern he's established for you. You can't duplicate what Jesus did and how exalted he was and how low he stooped and in how he and, and all those who are with him are in glory. But you can follow the pattern. And that's what Paul is telling us to do. Consider your own situation. Humbly submit to God's will. And tell the Lord, there's a lot of pride and a lot of selfishness still in me, Lord. Sometimes it just wells up. Help me that I would be so focused on what Christ has done for me that I would be glad and willing by your grace and spirit at work in me to follow that pattern, to deny myself, take up my cross, follow Christ, serving others, remembering that Jesus taught whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted, will be glorified one day for faithful service. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice that Christ had this mindset, that he was willing to set aside his privileges in order to become a human being for our sakes, to die in our place, our substitute, that we would put our hope and trust in him because he has won salvation for us. We thank you that he humbled himself to the lowest point possible because that's what we deserved. And he has now been exalted to your right hand where he reigns over his people. Thank you that we by grace are part of that. But help us, Lord, to live accordingly that we would be genuinely watching out for ways that we can serve others. And where we are doing so, we thank you for that. Thank you for the servants, the servant attitudes that so many in this church has already. May all of us, though, Lord, adopt that mindset and practice it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.